Welcome to the Film Common Podcast. I'm Devika Girish. And I'm Clinton Crute. We're the editors of Film Common. This week, we're reporting from Berlin, where the 2023 edition of the Berlinale is currently underway. Throughout the festival, we'll be sharing daily podcasts, dispatches, and interviews covering all the highlights of this year's selection. So follow along on the Film Comment podcast and the Film Comment letter. Choose. Welcome to our first on-the-ground podcast from the Berlin International Film Festival. I'm really excited to be here in person after three very long years and excited to be reporting on the ground. And also, excitingly, I have my co-editor, Clint, with me here. That's right, chiming in. Chiming in. We'll be doing these daily podcasts throughout the Berlinale, um, and I'm super excited to start off this run of podcasts with two excellent, excellent guests who I will ask to introduce themselves. Maybe we'll go with the debutante, the podcast debutante. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) This is B. Ruby Rich, sounding hoarser than usual, Um, editor of Film Quarterly, the friendly rival journal. Uh, (laughs) Not even. Sister, Uh, sister journal. Sister journal is cistern is much better. (laughs) And um, here... (laughs) Really um, enjoying the uh, quasi-euphoria of the the back-on-the-ground, back-in-person festival life. I'm Erica Balsam. I'm a reader in film studies at King's College London and here writing about the festival for Film Comment. Yes, and Erica has things, there's things she's going to be sending us very soon. So stay tuned for some interviews and words by her about the festival selections in the coming Film Comment letters, which you should subscribe to if you haven't already. She's going to have to be very careful not to overlap today, though. There's I know, no I can't overlap. give up on my good lines. <laughs> yeah, you have to make sure. I just assume there is a, there is a you know, people, people compartmentalize what they consume orally. And oh, you don't think that the audience is going to The audience may overlap, both? but there are different things that I feel like you gain when you read versus you listen. And also when you read, write versus you talk. Mm-hmm. I'm another person on the page. Exactly. That, simply put, that is what I'm getting at here. Uh, we have two very smart people with us here today. And thank you both for joining us um, in the midst of what is feeling like a whirlpool already, just two days in. Mm-hmm. But we've already seen quite a few films. And I thought that we would start by talking about a film all of us saw together earlier today. And that really put me in a great mood. And that is Paul Preciado's Orlando, My Political Biography. And I was thinking maybe, Ruby, you could set it up for us a little bit. Oh, boy. Okay. Um, I think that um, this is the first real trans masterpiece. Wow. And it's really, I know, well, what the hell, we're at a festival. Yeah. I like it. And uh, it's wonderfully a musical. And um, it's framed as a kind of uh, uh, update and homage to Virginia Woolf, uh, but taken in very unexpected directions and um, has a surprise ending, which I'll wait and let perhaps someone else identify. I don't want to run from the beginning to the end, all hogging the whole thing. But um, just to say that it is a way of framing um, transgender as the new reality 
I'm using, I take that word quite seriously because we're going to talk about another mm-hmm. film later. But um, I think there is a way in which it simultaneously naturalizes and denaturalizes uh, the state of being both and neither gender mm-hmm. and mm. um, moves wonderfully between the past and the present and between the woods and the city and um, and the courtroom. Between fiction and reality. Between fiction and reality, it's... I think very deeringly or bizarrely in the documentary category, mm-hmm. uh, which I think for a film that's all about resisting categories is somewhat odd yeah. um, and a bit of a stretch. But I think that it's a very, very original film. And there's not very much these days that feels so fresh mm. um, and so kind of out of a whole new candy box. Mm-hmm. So I'll wait and see what other people have to say. But that's my take on it at the moment, having just come out of it. Lovely. I think Preciado is probably familiar to some people best as an auto theorist and maybe also as a journalist. And it's interesting to see how this film adapts many of the ideas from his previous writing, but translate them, translates them into a radically different form. And I was trying to think of other examples of critical theorists or philosophers who have passed over into filmmaking. And I can't really think of any that do so in such a kind of fully realized Hmm. way. I mean, Jean-Francois Lyotard made a few short films, for instance. We can find these little moments. Susan Sontag, unfortunately. Susan Sontag, it's true, it's true. Ouch. But... um, but with Preciado, you know, it feels like a really natural development of the writing, but it's interesting to see it as such a sort of spectacular, cinematic, visually compelling film. Yeah. Also, I think it's not surprising that the ideas would be sharp, but I think what was great to see is that, in fact, formally, visually, s- cinematically, it's also very, very accomplished. Mm. And it's funny. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, not, it's not dry at all. Amazing but, performances. Yeah. And yeah, the performances, but they're also, as we said, like it's documentary and on, in one sense, as the actors describe their own lives and their lives meld with the fiction, with Virginia Woolf's fiction of Orlando until you have this kind of collective biography that is fictive, but real, more real than, or somehow more powerful than if each person were just sort of relating their own experience. Yeah. And and just to set up the film a bit for listeners, yeah, it, it is kind of it takes, I guess, the Virginia Woolf uh, novel as its basis or almost as a provocation. Uh, this idea of a trans character supposedly based on Wolf's lover, uh, Vita, Vita Sackville Sackle- West. West. West yes. um, and it, you know, describes this this character who sort of transitions from being a man to a woman. And I, I really loved this, you know, the film kind of begins with Preciado saying that he, I'm paraphrasing, kind of saw himself in that book, that he felt he was Orlando, but also didn't because the Orlando of the, uh, or, or the sort of trans corollary of the book is a character who is aristocratic. And so its transition is framed in a very different context than Paul Preciado experienced it. And he kind of expresses both that feeling of identification and joy and the rage, so both the closeness and the distance he felt from this text. And that is really where this wonderful movie resides, where it's gathering all these trans folks who 
have a similar kind of close relationship with the character, but at the same time don't relate in various ways. Some of them have to do with class, but also one thing I found very interesting is that uh, what you were saying would be like, the movie really takes a stance against binary language, even binary language that becomes very common in trans discourses, right? So like dysphoria and the the idea that in order to translate yourself as a trans person to the medical establishment, you have to, you know, you have to like speak in term in self-hating terms or you have to choose, like you have to say that I'm a man who wants to be a woman right. or vice versa. And it's like, so that's the past melding, past kind of meeting the present aspect of this film, which is really taking a very modern, taking this Virginia Woolf text, which obviously for its time was very radical, but then bringing it into an even more modern vocabulary where uh, even the ways in which we may have thought about this book is being challenged. At the same time, it, it won't catch it. Um, at the same time being... I don't know, there's all these little historical correctives to like, even when Virginia Woolf wrote the book, there were many trans people. There were people who were self-medicating. Mm -hmm. There were people who were, you know, synthetic hormones didn't exist, but people were experiencing transition in different ways. So just like this free... Yeah, there's uh, this archival footage of these of these two trans women, Christine Jorgensen and Cochino. I think Christine, the footage of Christine Jorgensen is from post-war, like 48, is that right? 57. 57, was it that late? 52 okay. or 57. And then Cochinal is French and is briefly described as having gone to Morocco in order to um, get surgery and then comes back and is appearing on talk shows and is something of a celebrity. But these two figures are also presented as kind of lodestones. Yeah. The film is very much a pastiche. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it really bears the mark of a kind of uh, almost Ulrika Ottinger kind of fantasia, mm -hmm. especially when it travels to alleged Constantinople. Yeah, so which is just like a... A restaurant, it looks like a Turkish restaurant. <laughs> yeah, there is a bit of uh, Orientalism in it, um, but it's it's very daring. I think it's very daring. Yeah, yeah. And for anyone who saw Framing Agnes last year, it kind of takes the next step toward mm -hmm. staking out a different way of taking up these subjects mm -hmm. and different ways of embodying these histories. Mm. You mentioned that it's sort of curious that the festival has put it in the documentary category, which I agree, it's sort of funny. But I suppose this question of like crossing genders is par is paralleled in the film by a kind of crossing of genres and i think fiction in the film is interesting because it also is sort of um a protective veil mm -hmm. in a way that is i think used to avoid kind of sensationalism avoid the feeling that the the performers are being asked to expose themselves yeah. for the camera mm -hmm. and so i think it's interesting also to situate the strategies in this film in relation to the way that trans issues are covered in the media, sometimes mm -hmm. without the care yeah. that they that they should be, there's like this evasion of you know medical fact or this insistence on fact that circumscribes trans issues so often. And I, I just want to say, I th there's so many lovely set pieces in the movie, and just the fluidity with which it transitions from first person voiceover memoir to pastiche to musical. I mean, there's these uh, amazing, almost nightclub type scenes. Uh, one of them is set to a song written by Preciado called Pharmaco Liberation, which 
is such an earworm. I mean, I immediately wanted the soundtrack. Uh, but the one set piece that really caught my attention, also because it made me think of another film I saw at this festival, which I'll talk about in a later episode, uh, Our Body by Claire Simone. And so the scene in Orlando that made me think of that is set in a psychiatrist's yeah. waiting room. A we were actually just office. talking about that scene on our walk over here to meet up with you. Oh, I right. Think, it's, this, it's, yeah. it's, it's so thought-provoking and it's one of the examples of how the film, you know, just questions the idea of representation. I mean, it, in a way, it's like a very interesting interrogation of the idea of representation. And it's so it's like grappling with what it means to see oneself in a text that will never fully represent you. And so the relationship between the queen, like Queen Elizabeth and Orlando, I believe, is sort of reframed as the psychiatrist and the trans patient. And it's this array of trans people in in the waiting room, all, you know, having different experiences and identities. And then they have these conversations with the doctor and they have these conversations about between themselves about accessing medication and how to kind of hack the system into mm -hmm. getting what they need. And I thought that was such a brilliant instance in the film of play and act, like actually like information, you know, information about like how uh, trans healthcare kind of works and call for revolution, you know, kind of smuggled in. It's, it's just doing so much at once. I found it delightful. Yeah, we had mentioned, though, there's also that moment where the where the doctor says, um, this is going to be, I think, 80 euros over what in your insurance will will compensate me for so and then they no the, checks no credit cards no checks no credit cards <laughs> which is then like kind of slid across the table right i think one of the other really striking scenes in the film is the surgery because of course the idea of surgery is such a fixation in the mainstream media's coverage of trans issues and trans healthcare. and here there's a sort of brilliant kind of appropriation of this trope that turns it to radically different ends. The surgery becomes a surgery on the book Orlando itself. A dissection and of the book. A dissection <laughs> of the book. And we actually have this excision of the various photographs of Vita Sackwell West's family that appeared in some editions of, of Orlando and instead the insertion of the many other lost Orlandos of history, yeah. uh, including Preciado himself as a child. It's, I think, like quite an amazing way of dealing with a topic that somehow has to be in the film mm -hmm. but can't be in the film the way it is in the mainstream media yeah yeah I love I love that scene and also it's kind of almost muttered on the side mm. that the Sackville West family had tried to ban the book because of mm. those photographs mm. um, so it's it's an interesting um, kind of revenge fantasy as well yeah well, I think I mean, we can keep talking. This is a this I is know. a movie that can I you know yeah. I I think we can, which is why I think maybe we should move on. Move on, move but on. I think this is a film we will be talking about and writing about for a while. I will definitely be writing about it for you. But there's one <laughs> thing we need to say before we finish, and yes. that is no spoilers. But the ending, <gasps> yes. The Queen Virginie Despentes, one of I think the most exciting writers of our time, appears as the judge. I mean, what world would we be living in? The judge in if the Virginie future, right? yeah. could the decide future, on our fates. Yes. Twenty twenty-eight, rethinking yes. in a in a again in a very funny, joyous little bit 
just like casually rethinking citizenship and rethinking yeah. sex assignment. Utopia. Yeah, yes. exactly. The the everyone can have the gender they want and the name they want on their passport. And by the way, we should mention that everyone in the film is named Orlando. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> they all take on that identity. They all introduce themselves and and mm-hmm. sort of place themselves in the text. Um yeah, I just it it truly I know I I said we should move on, but I will say like Erica, I have also read uh, Preciado's Auto Theory, and of course, he does such a good job of weaving, you know, theorizing himself in a sense. This works so beautifully as a collective text, even though his story frames it. He actually doesn't feel as if he is. He doesn't. He's, he's not at the center, right? And. Um, I I thought that is really remarkable and I think that does seem kind of rare for an academic or a theorist to achieve in this way this truly collective text unusually generous mm-hmm. very generous yeah and surprising given that the title of the film is my political biography so then it raises the question of you know what is that right you know what is a political biography and does a political biography mean exploding the category of the i mm-hmm. yeah and biography. I mean, it, everything feels quite loaded. In I mean, that it's title. kind of an anti-identitarian film, very much. Yes. And I think it instead is like thinking about the self as a process and always as a kind of metamorphosis and a yeah. form of becoming. And that does go against lots of ways of thinking about selfhood and identity right. today. And of fiction too. I think, as you as you pointed out, I mean, everybody's. I, each character or each actor introduces themselves and starts telling stories, and then it kind of they st- they suddenly seamlessly are become Orlando in the midst of these interviews, and you don't even really notice it until they're referring to like the 17th century and like you know <laughs> yeah, the great frost, <laughs> the descent of the great frost. Yeah, yeah. You're listening to the Film Comment podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Anyway, so that's us on Orlando, which Ruby has declared the first great trans masterpiece, and you can read more about it in Erica's Dispatch coming soon. We'll move on to a film that Ruby very slyly kind of name-dropped, pun-dropped, and that is Reality. Clint, maybe you want to tell us a little about this. Reality is uh, directed by Tina Satter, who I believe was is uh, known for as a dramaturge or I guess a playwright. performer, a playwright? And stage she, director. She's on. She's an actor too, right? Or director? Yeah, okay. playwright and stage director. Um, and this is her first film. This film uses a transcript from the FBI's raid of reality winner, the uh, whistleblower from 2017, right? I think that happened. Yes. So it uses this, tra- this FBI transcript of this raid of her house as a script and... Um, actors read this transcript verbatim and kind of reenact this raid. And I think uh, it's a very interesting idea. And I have some... I was uncomfortable with some of the uh, formal moves that that the movie makes because I think it... I think the text itself 
pushes against the idea of the whistleblower as a hero and as kind of a somebody striking a blow against empire but the movie itself seems to kind of want to buy into that a little bit more mm-hmm. and like the the choices made by the filmmakers seem to want to build this person up in that way as a snowden-esque hero even though explicitly in the movie i think there's a line where she says like i don't i'm not snowden i don't want to be like snowden yeah yeah i mean I found it very interesting. So I should just say that Reality Winner is played by Sydney Sweeney in mm-hmm. a pretty surprising and I think very strong performance. Yeah, she's um, very good. And yeah, so it, u- it uses the actual court transcripts and formally it's very interesting because we... Well, not we, court transcripts, the actual uh, sorry, transcripts sorry, of uh, like, the, like they recorded, recording the of, FBI of agents the recorded themselves interrogating her during a search of her house when right. they served her a warrant, a yeah. search warrant. Yeah. So the dialogue is verbatim lifted from those transcripts. And you see that because every now and then the screen cuts to um, a picture of the court doc of the transcript. And you see that even the little stumbles and fumbles and uhs and ohs and pauses have been reproduced verbatim. And the film keeps doing that, like cutting to the, to just like the image of like a wave recording or images of the transcript so that you, that layer of reality, God, it's just, it's right there, um, is constantly reinforced. And so you you never fully buy into the fiction. Like you always, even though this is a reenactment, you're always very, very aware that this was something that happened as we're watching it more or less. I think, yeah, politically, the case itself is quite complicated and interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, she was... She was in the military. She works as a ling- Air Force. She was in the Air Force reality winner. Then she was working as a linguist. That's when she leaked for these a files. Contractor for the an, an NSA contract. An NSA contract, and she leaked a particular internal NSA memo to the Intercept about possible Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And yes, she's not a Snowden-like figure because, I mean. <laughs> You know, when they're interrogating her, she has like three guns, including an AR-15 rifle, a a pink pink AR-15 rifle in her house. Uh, At the same time, she is very disturbed by the fact that her workplace constantly plays Fox News and, you know, is like feels very permeated by propaganda. And I think whistleblowers are interesting politically and kind of maybe tying back to, you know, what even what we were talking about with Orlando because they do cha- challenge certain like binaries that can get in sometimes get in the way of solidarity building right i mean a whistleblower someone who was working for the NSA or in the case of Snowden who was on the other side and then decides to turn so it's like they are in the process of of political like personal political transformation and it is i think challenging to figure out where she fits in, you know, within our political allegiances. And I think that's interesting because I think that like raises a lot of questions about how, you know, what it means to challenge power and from what direction that challenge should come or. I mean, I think I think that's true in theory, but I don't think this movie is going goes there. Well, I think it doesn't quite go there and I do agree with Clint that at the end it's a little too uh, there's like a crescendoing kind of swell of music and at the throughout end the music and there's is, a... throughout the music does it's like gives it this you kind of you kind of feel like you're watching Law and Order or something as during the interrogation scenes there's like you know synthesizer music in yeah, the background it's kind of eerie. And kind of like 
But it is it, it is like an episode what? of Law and Order. I mean, right. you know, do that you think is, that's like a purposeful generic I don't move? Think, I don't like think a citation. So. I haven't seen the film, but the way you describe it, it immediately yeah, made me I wonder. Do, I do think so. I mean, no, you do. But yeah, I mean, I I th- I think the film has more going for it than you are giving it credit for. That's probably true. Um, and I think it's a problem to have just come from Orlando. Because it's the polar opposite of Orlando. It's spare, where um, Orlando is, you know, it, 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 it's unadorned, where Orlando is over the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's all about realism, where Orlando is all about fabulism. And, um, but I do think that the, this conceptual um, decision to stick to the FBI transcript makes for a very weird kind of film because they are speaking in this stilted way and you can imagine that that is the way that that scene went down, that this girl living in this really crummy house, I guess you could call it a house. In Augusta, Georgia. In Augusta, Georgia, with this very spare life that revolves around a horrible workplace Mm -hmm. and um, the gym where she is a competitive weightlifter. And yeah. nobody in her life, there's a, a reference partway through to breaking up with her boyfriend. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's it's her, her dog, and her cat, and her guns. Yeah. One gun per occupant of the house, three of them. <laughs> and um, I, I thought it was very poignant. I mean, I've actually been really interested in the case of Reality Winner mm-hmm. because she was just sacrificed. Yeah. Exactly. And nobody stood up for her. She was given five years in prison when not a single Republican in Congress, not a single person off of Fox News has been thrown into prison. Five years for what? For leaking one document that The Intercept did not handle properly and exposed her and gave her up and did not protect her. I mean, Devika was also saying earlier that that was not really handled. So I actually think the way the, the, the sloppy handling of her information by The Intercept is to me one of the most interesting elements of this whole saga because, you know, it. I think that that has a chilling effect too, right? I mean, it when journalists don't do their work properly mm-hmm. in protecting their sources, that leads to these like horrible real life consequences. Right. And it was, I, I was hoping the film would go more into that. Obviously, the film has a very defined specific conceit and that is just kind of an, a footnote and I wish that it had gone into that a little more but you know I just I I think I feel the same way I have so much just I feel for this figure so much even though she's clearly someone very different from me maybe even in terms of her politics you know but you really get the sense even watching the film that whoever she was she was she's she took a huge risk because she started feeling like helpless and that something was wrong and that she needed to do something about it she had the power she was kind of an impulsive move yeah and she took this enormous risk and you know and then suffered like very badly for it and i do think that kind of law it's it's so stilted i think that's the word for it the performance because they are trying to reproduce everything verbatim it all feels very staged but it feels familiar because you've seen all these law and order and SVU things. And I was like, they really talk like that? They really ask all these like sort of seeming nice guy questions about the pets and like this, I don't know, awkward small talk that feels creepily nice. 
And the fact that the film keeps pulling you out of the fiction or of the reenactment saying like, this is how it happened. This is how it happened. They have a recorder on right now. There's just something, it just got under my skin in a way that I do, I feel like I have to give it credit for. Okay. Fair, <laughs> fair enough. Next, no, next, next. Just no, I, ju- I just, want, I just think that I wish that I just wish that it had been more spare. I just wanted, I wanted them at the beginning for you just the first two lines to read the transcript. I do think they were using the actual audio, right? Am I wrong? Because I feel like the first two lines you're hearing like filtered. It's hard to tell. It's pretty. It's hard to tell. But then I was like, oh, they're just going to be lips. They recorded this, and then they're going to actually they looped the audio over. Yeah, (laughs) and I and there and if and I just kind of wished that it had not cut away from this this entire scene. There hadn't been this these cutaways to the transcript, cutaways to like the intercept, cutaways to news reports. There were like you know it cuts away to like Fox to Tucker Carlson. You know, yeah. excoriating her and, and like, I mean, listen, I don't know why I'm being so hard on this movie, which is actually quite interesting, but I think that I just wanted it to be like even more hardcore, just formally, just like mm. go there. But we can move you wanted, on. You wanted a Brechtian, a Brechtian piece. Yeah. <laughs> Erica, I'm going to charge you with coming up with some sort of transition from reality to a portrait of Margaret Tate. <laughs> <laughs> There is one. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe one thing that runs through uh, the films we've been talking about is the idea of what it means to represent a life. Mm. And the fact that today I think there's really um, a huge it. interest, <laughs> a huge interest in that. And it, there's a sense like life experience today is taken as a kind of ground of authenticity. And so, of course, like this is a huge uh, place. Cinema wants to go. But I think many filmmakers know that it's not an easy thing to do mm-hmm. and that there are many kind of traps one can fall into. And I think uh, Orlando and reality clearly make very concerted formal moves to try and break with some of the typical ways that um, biographical stories are presented. I would say the same is true of Luke Fowler's uh, newest film, Being in a Place, A Portrait of Margaret Tate. Um, I'm a huge fan of Luke Fowler's work in general, a Scottish artist filmmaker who often makes portraits. Uh, But this one, I think, is the strongest film he's made in quite a while, one of the strongest he's ever made. Part of what's so interesting about it is that it's the first time he's made a film about a filmmaker. Mm. And Margaret Tate, I think, is maybe less known in the U.S. than in the U.K. where I live. Um, But she was... um, a filmmaker who made single-person films uh, in in the Orkney Islands in Scotland Mm. for decades. Um, And she made portraits very much grounded in that place. And so here we have Fowler taking on that subject, but in a way it becomes a kind of reflection on his own sensibility, his own commitment to 16-millimeter first-person filmmaking. I think um, many artists now are moving towards bigger and bigger budgets, bigger crews, Uh, Fowler is not one of them. He's shooting with a Bolex. He's going, spending time Mm. in a place. He works in archives a lot. Um, It's really a commitment to um, a personal process of research and experience. Um, And here I think there's a very interesting way that a kind of fragmentary account of Tate comes together with an impressionistic sense of what his idea of cinema is. Um, 
We don't see much of Margaret Tate in the film. It's a portrait that is not grounded in resemblance. We also don't get a narrative of her life. So there's really a break with some of the dominant ways for thinking about biography and portraiture. And it really strikes me that maybe this is a thread Yeah, so far in Excellent the films we've been discussing. Is it done in the style of the work that she did in her lifetime? I'm Certainly curious about that. Not, not in the sense that it's um, imitating her in any way, but it is uh, made in response to an unfinished work of hers called Heartlandscape, and this existed just as a sort of proposal. And so he works from this proposal and from the chapter headings that appear within it. Mm. But, you know, Fowler is very much an inheritor of Tate's style of filmmaking, and he's always cited her as a big influence on his work. So it's not like mimicking his style the way we saw maybe with um, uh, Avendre D. Robinson mm. last year at Berlinale, where there is a kind of mimicry of late Godard's style. Uh, it's not that. But there is a sort of affinity there, or an echo, maybe. Hmm. Well, I'm wondering if I, if we should take that thread and take it in a very different but sort of related direction, Blackberry, which is also kind of a representation. You may you you sound like we just we're just dismissing this film that we want to talk oh, about Blackberry. No. In fact, quite the opposite. The the truth is that it's only Erica was able to see this. We all try. We've all be- desperately no, been trying. It's sold to get out. It's been no, sold out. We, it's yeah. been sold out. Yeah. I didn't mean. That I just want to note that. I just want to note like, that before like, we move on. Erica was like, that's a trend. And I was like, that's so right. Because right. Blackberry I just is scooped, also I just scooped this. myself. What am I, how am I going to theme my recap now? No, it, it's fine. Um, no, that sounds fascinating. I'm trying my best to get a ticket to uh, another screening coming up. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't. That's why I have nothing to say. <laughs> but I, I just, what you said, and I, I just was like, this also applies to this film Blackberry. So why don't you tell us about Blackberry? Sure. Yeah, what Erica was just saying about the Luke Fowler film very ironically is reminding me of a film we saw yesterday, Blackberry, one of the opening films um, by Matt Johnson, who's a Canadian director. And it, Competition, right? Yeah, it's a competition title. And it is. it tells the story of the invention of the world's first smartphone, which was the Blackberry. But it tells the story of the rise and fall of Blackberry. And... I guess what's sort of distinctive about it, it is kind of a classic tech tale, you know, a classic tale of, um, you know, nerds and... Nerd geniuses. Yeah, sloppy nerd geniuses and ruthless, horrible, egotistical, toxic business business guys guys teaming up to create something and then sort of getting ahead of themselves and then coming crashing down. And in this case, the inventor... Mike Lazaridis and uh, business, the business guy is uh, Jim Balsley. And so they sort of come together to sell, to come up with the Blackberry and sell it and achieve enormous success in the process. This Jim guy commits um, like securities fraud and yeah. And so, and then the iPhone, basically the climax of the movie, the iPhone comes and then they're up against tough competition. And also, you know, they go from being like, these nerds who watch Spielberg movies and, you know, eat Uh-oh. pizza and then, you know, yeah. And then they, they have to wear suits and go to meetings. So it's, it's very cliche, the beats that it hits, mm-hmm. the kind of Canadian vibe, which Erica, I Canadian. might be stereotyping Tell me about it. here. 
is that the whole film is shot in this kind of grainy handheld style. Mm-hmm. So it's very like anti-spectacular, you know, these tech movies. I mean, the clear reference that comes to mind is the social network. And so mm-hmm. you go in thinking this is going to try to do something like that. And it's a very different style from Fincher. There's just something performatively indie about the style to me. Waterloo is not San Francisco. Waterloo, <laughs> Ontario, the headquarters. Which is made clear Blackberry. in the movie many times. But there's a lot know, of hockey talk. Like that is the way we roll. The business guy is like obsessed with hockey and in fact his downfall has to do with has him like to trying to acquire NHL. a hockey team and bring it to to Waterloo, Waterloo or Hastings or something. I don't <laughs> yeah. know where these places are. But you know, it's it's just, there is something where that style, which I think is meant to uh, give off a D- DIY vibe, actually felt like TV. Mm-hmm. It felt like mockumentary. And, and because of the way the movie is performed and it's written in a pretty cliche way, you know, it's a very familiar kind of beats. It really felt like an episode of The Office or of Silicon, Silicon Valley, yeah. which Giovanni said. But Silicon Valley without, as I said, responded, without jokes. Like, expected to be funny. Or just dated jokes. Yeah. I didn't these think jokes it, are just very yeah. dated. You know, I mean, this is these stories well, are trying to be familiar. entirely the period that it's documenting. Well, <laughs> I think Maybe it went yeah. too far in its fidelity. Yeah, but, but strangely, it's not accurate like the the clothes that they're wearing seem like they're from like the late 80s early 90s and then at one point it, maybe this is just canada but like, i wasn't gonna say it but uh you said it for me <laughs> i guess i guess i expect i more didn't know this was gonna be a canada bashing I, session oh, look I'm judging we Canada based a, on the movies it is bringing to the Berlinale, okay? No, no, <laughs> I've watched I think it's... one so far. <laughs> the film is kind of, to me, unremarkable. Maybe it's interesting in a way. It The thing that feels contemporary is how much it emphasizes what one might term toxic masculine yeah. capitalist behavior and how the first half of the film seems to kind of almost gleefully indulge it. You know, there's so many scenes of men like screaming at each other and slamming There's not a single woman in the movie. Except for one scene where a boss refers to a room full of engineers as men and the camera zooms in on the woman in the room to make the point. That is the only woman, I think, other than secretaries. And then you see kind of it all melting down. So there is this uh, foregrounded critique of that kind of hubris that feels um, that feels contemporary in the way that it kind of underlines a, a certain kind of also homosocial ickiness. I don't know. It's it's very icky, like all the relationships in the movie. But what was striking to me was the the way it was shot. I kept trying to think, why is this shot like this? Is it to give some kind of grain of reality, a real referent? Is it to make it seem kind of Indian DIY matching the setting of the film? The fact that it's Canadian, this is not a Hollywood film, this is not the social, it's not a Hollywood film about Silicon Valley. And the fact that that ultimately came off... I think it's the Guy Madden influence myself. Oh, really? Uh, heavy <laughs> Canadian. <laughs> Well, what I wonder is that Blackberries weren't just the first smartphones. They were also quintessentially corporate. Right. It was business people that had Blackberries. Does that come into it at all? I'm curious. Yeah. I mean, it's very much about like high business world, New York. (sighs) There's a ridiculous scene where the salespeople are charged with like selling like hundreds more phones in a very 
short nope. period of time. No. And they're they're said you're not they're told you're not marketers anymore, you're models. And they're sent to all these sort of business hangs, elite business hangs, and asked to be loud and obnoxious while using the Blackberry. And apparently people just come begging them for more Blackberry. Now who knows how much of this is based in reality, but it is definitely referencing that particular myth of corporatism, which I think is related to this kind of what I'm describing as an aggressive masculinity that was very valorized and now is we're sort of at least a little bit culturally shifting away from that. But this but this movie is like it's extreme. Like the characterization of Jim Balsilli is like he's just in he can't this person would have had a heart attack when they were twenty four. Like he just wouldn't have lived. He's so intense and screaming and cursing at everybody at all times. I kinda believe that. I, he was just like a psycho he would be in jail. Like <laughs> the, he just was like a, he almost went to jail, he, but he evaded jail. He somehow. evaded jail, yeah. Yeah. Um yeah, I don't have very much to say about that. I don't Blackberry. either. I do think that the name of the Blackberry has always been funny to me, though. And yeah, and there so does it explain why it was named no. Blackberry? I always assumed it was because the, the, the keyboard, keyboard looks like a Blackberry, but that always seems like such a weird, poetic I think that's leap it. of imagination. But, but the but movie doesn't make that point even, at all. No, but they do talk about the naming process, and then they just jump right Switch in. Switch to yeah. the... Yeah. So do you have anything to say in Canada's defense, Erica? Representative. Um, I'm from Newfoundland, so it's like barely a part of Canada. <laughs> you're dis you're disavowing. Well, let's go south. Well, that's a segue. Yeah, exactly. another film about place, though. What kind of, another film that's like grounded very much in a specific place. Oh, okay. So you want to talk about El Echo? Yes, right, so let's yeah. get into okay. it. Okay, great. So uh, I really like this film. Uh, it's by Tatiana Hueso, and her last film, Prayers for the Stolen, got a fair mm. bit of attention. Um, and I thought it was just striking and spectacular. And um, she works really, I mean, we started out with this, talking about the edge between documentary and fiction, and she works very much on that edge, but on the documentary side of it, mm -hmm. teasing out these narratives and characters out of the actual lives of people living in villages uh, in the mountains in Mexico. And um, this is shot largely in this, you can't even say it's a town, really, in this region it's called almost, uh, El Echo. Yeah, just like a little valley, right? Like sort of a hollow in the in the landscape. Yeah, it's um, it's a farming mm -hmm. community, sheep, um, and gathering of 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 crops and um, generations. I mean, it sounds almost like that kind of novelistic passing of the seasons mm -hmm. and people grow up and this one leaves and that one dies. And it's very much the fabric of life kind of, of film. Mm -hmm. um, but she does it exquisitely. She's incredibly good at this. And I don't know much about her process, but she's evidently embedded in these communities over a long period of time. Um, and we've been seeing some of these kinds of films come out of, mostly out of Eastern Europe. Mm. And so to see it coming out of Mexico with the same level of rigor and attention and care for the, almost the miniature moments of life is very moving. And it does include one of the central characters, so to speak, dying. Yeah. The grandmother who's mm. being taken care of, um, quite tenderly through much of the film mm -hmm. ends up dying. Um, and so, you know, it's a it's a small film, uh, and yet it's um, in. There's not a false note in it. It's kind of sprawling though, too, and 
Yeah, I mean, there's. It's, I think it tells the story of four families, but you don't really, unless you're aware of that going in, you kind of get lost in the in these networks of people, and you kind of experience this village as as they do in a way. I guess you're really very close to the ground. Their daily routines, the birthing of a lamb. Yeah, I mean, it is it is quite beautiful. But I didn't. I was not. A, didn't go in knowing that it was documentary. And so I had I, I kind of assumed that it was fiction with um, with non-professional actors who are maybe a family. And so, it, but it's not straight up documentary. Oh, yeah. so I'm not sure it is. Okay, so there are because because some of the dialogue does seem written or we don't know pre-written. Yeah. So maybe somewhere in between. I would say it's somewhere in between, but I don't know. Is it the same region that was in prayers for the stolen, or it's not? It's not clear. I mean. I will say that like one of the the movies called El Echo, and in clearly she's talk she's talking about echoes through time through generations. It focuses on the uh, women in the, in these families and the little boy and the little boy. Yeah, you kind of but this grandmother and the mother of this other family are kind of big big figures. Well, the men are absent. Yeah, the men are working clear. right. Yeah, and and there's a lot of lessons that are passed down from these generations about how to be a woman and how to be a man like at one point the father tells the little boy like don't take your plate off the table that uh men don't wash dishes and then later in the film the the mother tells the father that like she wants to switch jobs for a while and he stays home with the family and she can go work and be a carpenter or whatever he's mm-hmm. doing and he's you know rejects this idea out of it but I think that like it is listed as documentary on the Berlinale program, but well, I mean I think uh, we're seeing how impossible it is right. to and sort it's of an like encounter. So I think there might be some blurred edges. It definitely there, to yeah. me, I, I, it would be this thread of this kind of intergenerational feminism was explicit to me in a way that would be like surprising if it was entirely documentary mm. and this like the scene at, at the end when the little girl is teaching the other little kids about rev- about the mexican revolution and how like women w- were freed and how <laughs> they were once slaves i think th- yeah i think that that's really skillfully kind of woven into this documentary um so i have a question scene. i have not seen the film but you know when you described Eastern European films made in this vein. I, f- I feel like I sometimes see a lot of those at festivals and I can find them a little trying. And there was a point like a couple of years ago when I when I identified a trend of films that were all about a woman in some remote, you know, mm-hmm. part of the world. And it'll usually fe- feature a scene of them like skinning a lamb like That's slowly or, or you know this. like birthing but it's a, a family cow. doing it together so to me i always wonder like why do some of these films make more of an impression than others you know i mean what is it because i always go in with like a little bit of skepticism in just inbuilt skepticism about these sort of quasi ethnographic films that are just capturing like a way of life mm-hmm. which has value i mean I'm, i'm making a very broad statement here but i always wonder like what is the thing that stands out like here what is it that feels like the filmmaker is intervening in some interesting way or you know there is the filmmaker's hand is particularly yeah i'm not sure i mean um i've never met or interviewed her mm-hmm. uh i saw the earlier film uh which was clearly fictional mm-hmm. 
Um, so I'm not sure where she where she sits on that knife edge between the two, mm-hmm. but I would say that very clearly putting the two films together, there's a commitment to this region mm-hmm. and to people who are living this very stark existence, but mm-hmm. are also, you know, possibly the last of the people living this very stark mm-hmm. existence. So, you know, I, I think we always need to interrogate films in terms of what what the um, commitment of the filmmaker is, what the reason is, why they're there, who's profiting from it, all yeah. that kind of thing, how much of a collaboration it is. But one thing I always do is look at the credits. Yeah. And I was very impressed with the credits of this film that every single person in it is named mm-hmm. and the, the village councils are credited. And it's very clear that this was made um, not as a way to just quickly... Um, as, as it's called, it's not it's not a it's not a case of extractive documentary, right. mm-hmm. but a case of a commitment to a community. So I want to know more about the way that she works and and what her trajectory is. But I thought it was quite impressively done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's very poetic. I mean, the filmmaker's presence is in the these you know shots of really striking landscapes, but also how long she's willing to let a shot go on. Too. Yeah. And also, I think also there's like a real respect for the individuals in the film, that she's not portraying them uh, with any kind of agenda or any kind of preconceived idea of who they are. They Many of them, you know, as you said, they're living, they're farmers, they're living a stark existence, but they are like incredibly intelligent. They're, re, you know, they're dedicated to education, to educating themselves, and they're, and they're really curious about the world, the children. And I think that that is a... It's it, that make that kind of sets this film apart from similar styles of m- movies that kind of are more extractive, as you've said. Hmm. That being said, I didn't really like that, <laughs> <laughs> but I got. But well, we'll cut that out because I do think Ruby has talked me into. God, some you're of such an easy. You're such an easy sell. Oh, I don't have. Oh no, <laughs> that made it sound like an insult to Ruby. <laughs> but he, he just gives up. Uh, yeah, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think that's a great note to wrap this up on. On a we started on a very upbeat note, and we're ending on a positive note. What? That's an amazing outcome for a first festival podcast. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's the euphoria of the back to in person festival. That's what you're experiencing. Oh, the sleep deprivation. I that too. But this yeah. is just the beginning. I know. There's yeah. there's no jet lag <laughs> when you're in your living room online. True. Well, thank you both so much. Thank you for joining thank us, you. and I'll see you both around at the festival, and maybe again on the podcast if I can kidnap you after a screening and and just thrust a mic into your hands like I did with Ruby today (laughs) put us on the long march exactly (laughs) the film comment podcast features original music by Greg Einge film comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center since 1962 film comment has been the home of independent film journalism publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, art house, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.